When I was in seminary, I took a Hebrew exegesis class with uh, Dr. Bruce Waltke. Now, uh, Dr. Waltke can read biblical Hebrew about as uh, easily as you and I can read children's nursery rhymes, and he forgets sometimes that uh, not everybody, well, hardly anybody, can do that. And the way that Dr. Waltke would uh, conduct this class is that he would have a student, we'd do some preparation, but he'd have a student um, read the text in Hebrew and then uh, translated it, and then he'd usually ask another student some grammatical questions about the Hebrew grammar there. And then finally, because it was a class in Hebrew exegesis, he'd ask some exegetical questions, which are more complicated and, and require uh, careful paying attention to what's going on in the text. And um, it was an intense uh, hour uh, a few times a week. Um, you just had your eyes riveted on that text, afraid to take them off of the text. But I remember a one spring day, it was a beautiful spring day, the window was open, and the fellow next to me, one of my classmates, made the fatal mistake of allowing his attention to drift out of the window for probably less than a minute. And when his attention came back, he was hopelessly lost. And... Um, and I could see him uh, out of the corner of my eye, frantically looking around the room, pleading for somebody to help him to figure out where he was in case he got called on. And uh, well, they got uh, finished with the uh, with the reading and uh, and the translation. I think that's the part that he missed and some of the grammatical questions. And as it turned out, um, for the exegetical questions. Dr. Walkie called on my classmate, um, who looked absolutely panicked and frantically looked around the room for somebody to help him uh, until the tension was broken finally by Dr. Walkie's chastisement in his Jersey City accent. And he said, Mr. Bauer, the answer, sir, is not out in the room somewhere. The answer is in the text. And, um, you know, the Bible speaks to us about our origin, our purpose, about the destiny to which God has uh, designed us. The answer to those kinds of questions uh, are not found in speculation, in Greek philosophy, out in the room somewhere. They're found in the text of the word of God. So let's pay close attention to it. I'm going to read to you today from uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 28, and then again, chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, 15 through 17. These are passages that we've read already, again, in this series as we're considering what the Bible has to say about uh, heaven. And let me just say again that we're, we're laying a foundation for where all this is going, but the foundation is necessary to understand what the Bible ultimately tells us about heaven. So this is God's word. And God said, let the land produce living souls according to their kinds, livestock, 
creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then chapter 2 and verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living soul. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing for the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, Father, thank you that if we will uh, read it and we'll ponder it and we'll uh, listen to it, that you uh, give to us such a rich vision and view of what you've created us for. Uh, Lord, in the, in, in the humdrum and the, the busyness of day-to-day life, we sometimes forget the grandeur for which you've made us. And, and the whole of the world really is arrayed against us, telling us that there's no meaning, no purpose in life. Our lives don't really mean anything. Your word tells us otherwise. Uh, Lord, help us to gain a clear vision of our origin, of our purpose, and the destiny for which you've made us. In Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, if we're going to understand heaven, we can't start with heaven. I've said that uh, over the last few weeks now. If we pay close attention to the original path that God's laid out for us, we're going to see that the Son of God became man, not ultimately to bring people to heaven, but rather to rescue and to restore the earth. And to understand that, to see that, we need to pay close attention to the text. One of the things that needs to be corrected, I think, at the outset is the misapprehension, the misunderstanding that paradise and the pre-fallen earth were the same thing. That they were the said that the pre-fallen earth was 
a paradise. Paradise and the pre-fallen earth are not the same thing. Uh, But for some reason, people tend to think that that's so. They speak of, I've heard people say, oh yeah, well, you know, before sin came into the world, the earth was a paradise. But the post-Nicene church fathers and the early medieval theologians indicated otherwise, and a careful reading of the biblical text shows us otherwise. Um, The word paradise is a word that indeed occurs in the Bible. You need to understand that that word is an old Persian word. It comes uh, into Hebrew, uh, into the Hebrew vocabulary, uh, when Israel is in her captivity in Babylon, and then Babylon falls to the Persian Empire. And while they're in captivity, um, Aramaic enters their vocabulary, and Persian enters their vocabulary, some Persian words. Paradise is one of those words. The old Persian word, paradis, means a walled garden, an enclosed place that is cultivated. And that word occurs three places in the Old Testament. It occurs in Nehemiah 2.8, in Ecclesiastes 2.5, and Song of Solomon 4.13. If you look up those passages, in every instance, the word refers to a king's walled garden, the cultivated area that is kept. Now, uh, as that word is used in the New Testament because the same word uh, becomes transliterated into the New Testament, paradis. It's coincidentally used in three passages as well. It's used in Luke 23, 43, in 2 Corinthians 12, 4, and in Revelation 2, 7. And if we were to read that word, and particularly as it's used in Luke and 2 Corinthians through the lens of Plato, we would think that it was a reference to heaven. But the word means a garden, a carefully kept, a walled, a cultivated garden. And the first mention of a garden that we have in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Again, we read in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Now the word uh, paradis is not used here because that word wasn't in the Hebrew vocabulary at this point, but the passage that I mentioned before, Revelation 2-7, identifies paradise with this garden. This is what it says. It's a promise of God, and it says, to the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Where do we find the tree of life? What's he referring to? We find it here in the garden that God had planted. And so what he's referring to here is the garden of God. Uh, In Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 and 15, this is the garden of God. It's important that you note that here, that this is God's garden. 
It's a garden that God gave by grace. It wasn't the result of human effort. It wasn't that God created this earth that could be called paradise, and then man said, hey, let me make a garden here in which I'm going to live. And we're told very clearly here in the text, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living soul. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in the Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And so the garden was God's garden. It was his paradise graciously given to man. And this garden was to be the base of operation for fulfilling the assignment that God had given him. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and following, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. The theological word book of the Old Testament, which looks at uh, Hebrew words in their context, looks at this word, this Hebrew word for subdue, and it says here, this word implies that creation will not do man's bidding gladly or easily, and that man must bring creation into submission by strength. Subdue the earth. And and we see as we look up... uh, Just prior to this, when God created the land animals, repeated twice that we're told that there were wild animals that God made, each according to its kind, in verse 24, and repeated again in verse 25, then God made the wild animals according to their kind. And and so as you look at the story as it unfolds, Human beings created as the image of God are to express that image in carrying out a task that God gives to them that is to be analogous to the work of God in creation. Because what did we see when we looked back at the creation? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was exactly like it is today, right? That's not what it says. It says the earth was formless and void. It was chaotic. And God then formed the chaos into a cosmos. And it goes on to speak of God's forming and filling. This formlessness is formed. The void is filled. Mankind is the image of God, uh, is to carry out a work that is analogous to that work. At the end of this narrative, we read that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. As my old teacher, Dr. Richard Gaffin, used to say, says that it was very good, not the very best, but it was to become the very best. And as mankind walked in harmony and obedience to God, operating out of this place of grace, this garden of grace, He was to express the image of God by bringing the order of the garden to the wilderness of the rest of the earth, to fill the earth and to subdue it 
and to rule over it. And it's evident right in the text that Eden and the earth are not the same thing. Eden is a paradise, it's the garden, and earth is not, or I should say not yet. So what was man's original destiny? As we consider this question of heaven, what was mankind's original destiny? In other words, I want to ask you to use your imagination for a moment. Had Adam been obedient to God's command, I just want you to kind of run the scenario forward, run the clock forward, and what would it have looked like? What was mankind's original destiny? I'll tell you what his original destiny was not. His original destiny was not to die and go to heaven. That was not mankind's original destiny. We're told in Romans 6.23 that death is the wages of sin. It's the wages of our rebellion. It's the wages of our attempted independence from God. And we see in this text here that human beings were were created mortal, that is, that they have the ability to die, but there in the garden was the tree of life, which they would have access to if they had walked in harmony with God, in obedience to God. When sin entered our experience, death entered our experience. But it's important that we see that, that if Adam had not sinned, he wouldn't have died and gone to heaven. So let me tell you what some of the early theologians thought as they put these things together. As I pointed out before that we saw in the creation of of heaven that, 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 that heaven is the creation of God. It's not the necessary environment of God. That God created the heavens and the earth. That God condescends, he humbles himself to dwell there. And that becomes the intersection of God and his creation. It's there that God meets with his creation. He doesn't have to live there, but he humbles himself to do so. And the early theologians saw that uh, God would visit with mankind upon the earth. They drew that conclusion from what they read after man's rebellion in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And, And it appears that God would come and he would meet with man, but he didn't dwell with man. And then based on what God actually does in his redemptive work in Christ, as we saw last week in Revelation 21, that uh, John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And we saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven to earth. And we said, now, it said, John said, now is the dwelling of God with man, they looked at that and they concluded that had the original plan without sin uh, gone off, that uh, the plan was for mankind as he lived out the image of God and extended the blessings of the garden throughout the earth, took that last little bit of chaos and made it into a cosmos in walking in harmony with God, that the place of God's dwelling would move from heaven to earth. But Adam rebelled. 
and his task was incomplete, and it is now incompletable. The Son of God came not merely to restore us to the place from which Adam fell, but to bring us to the place which Adam should have attained. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul refers to Christ by two names. He calls him the second man and the last Adam. And that Paul calls him the second man and the last Adam is more significant than we might at first realize. In verse 47, Christ is called the second man. From the standpoint of what God is doing, there's no one between Adam and Christ. He's the second man. And he's called the last Adam in verse 45. There'll be no one to come after him. You know, sometimes uh, Genesis 1.28, um, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves along the ground. Sometimes that is called, referred to as the cultural mandate, right? How many of you have heard that term before, the cultural mandate of Genesis? Sometimes it's called that. Um, I don't have an objection to that terminology, but don't make the mistake of thinking that this is something that we can now fulfill. That ship has sailed, and we've failed. Because the original subduing and ruling was to bring the blessings of God's garden to the rest of the earth. It was to be a reflection of the way that God subdues and rules. That is to say, with kindness, goodness, and love. We hardly think of those words as subduing and ruling uh, in association with kindness, goodness, and love. Why not? Because we look at the world around us. And when we see people subduing or ruling others, well, it's seldom characterized by kindness, goodness, and love. But the point of this cultural mandate was to extend the blessings of the garden throughout the whole earth to the ends of the earth. And we're no longer able to do that, not the way that we were supposed to do it. Last week, we read Psalm 8, and I just want to read to you a portion of that again. Here, David is pondering, he's contemplating, and he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over all the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all that swims in the paths of the sea. What's he referring to? He's referring back to this cultural mandate. That was the original plan, now in tatters. But the writer to the Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, it's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come about which we're speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, 
or the Son of Man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to him. Not in the way that God had intended, but we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And the Son of God became man not ultimately to bring people to heaven, but to rescue the earth. See, the original plan of God was that mankind made in the image of God would express that image by uh, living out of the garden as a base of operation and walking in harmony and obedience to God would spread the blessings of the garden through the ends of the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, over the abyss. And God formed a cosmos out of the chaos. It was a cosmos that was not yet entirely complete. Mankind, made as the image of God, was to be God's agent in completing the creation and conforming the whole of the earth to the garden to the paradise of God. He was to be God's agent in subduing, as God had subdued the chaos, and subduing that last little bit of chaos so that the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters covered the seas. In Christ, God did not abandon that plan. In the book of Romans, we see that God, in fact, still has that plan. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 19, we read, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. In our rebellion, the creation was left incomplete, but it wasn't only that. It began its slow slide back to chaos. And whereas we were to be God's agents to complete the creation, as it were, to bring the blessings of the garden to the ends of the earth. Now, as it begins its slow slide back to chaos, because we have declared our independence from God, it drags us with it. Christ did not come to concede the defeat of sin and chaos and to give us the consolation prize of heaven. But to restore the earth, to create a new heaven and a new earth, and ultimately to make them one. 
And so in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, he says to the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We can no longer fulfill the command that God's given to us to subdue the earth, to rule over it, not in the way that he intended us to. And the creation itself is sliding back toward chaos, and we're going with it. But here's Christ, the second man. There's no one between him and Adam. And the last Adam, there'll be no one else who comes after him. You know, friends, I think it's more than mere coincidence that the Son of God is taken away from a garden when he's taken to judgment and crucifixion. Because he became a very part of this creation, which has now fallen in his death, the whole of the world, the whole of this creation was judged. And in his resurrection begins a new creation, begins the start of what Jesus called the regeneration of all things. But there are only two. Adam, the man who fails and falls from grace in the garden and begins the inevitable slide back to chaos, and Christ who succeeds and triumphs and regains grace and the garden and will extend the garden to the ends of the earth. And all of humanity is either in Christ or in Adam. And you are either in Adam or you're in Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam, all die. In Christ, all will be made alive. And the Son of God became man not ultimately to bring people to heaven, but rather to rescue the earth and to extend the garden of God to the ends of the earth. You know, the whole of the Bible tells that story in types and shadows. We, we see a shadow of it in the book of Joshua as Joshua goes in to take the land. And Joshua says to the people, do you remember? He says to them, choose today whom you will serve. And every one of us is presented with such a choice. What is your answer? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Are you in the man who fails and falls and slides back to chaos? Or are you in the one who succeeds and triumphs and overcomes? The answer that we need to give to that question is found in the text. But the answer that you, in fact, do give is to be found in your heart 
and life. Which is it? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Father, we um, contemplate that awesome question before we partake of the Lord's table together. And Father, give us a clarity of thinking. Help us to test ourselves and examine ourselves. And, And Father, being found in Christ, may we participate with him and in him this sacrament of grace which you have left, this, this bread and wine, these physical elements. As your servant C.S. Lewis said, that you like matter, you created it. And you're pleased to show your grace to us through it. And Father, we who are the recipients of your grace gladly receive it in Christ. Amen. Mm-hmm.